A reading from Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, as we come now to your word, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit. We've just said that we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And uh, for some of us, we're uh, desperately struggling uh, to be able to say that uh, honestly. Some of us um, that we are able to say we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit with joy. Um, many of us are somewhere in between, but we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit that you yourself would work in us so that we would be able to hear your word and apply your word and respond to your word, take away distractions, take away our, uh, our own resistance and work deeply within us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It would be great if you would uh, turn back to page 10, that uh, gospel reading. So those are the words of Jesus. At the beginning, um, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. If you're wondering who that is, that's Jesus. This is the beginning of Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're not going to look at the whole reading. We're going to zero in uh, just on one verse. Take a look at verse 6. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Uh, and you notice that image of hunger. Uh, the, you probably noticed the imagery of hunger, the concept of hunger in uh, the first reading, which is from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And uh, you also saw the theme of hunger in the psalm, um, taste and see that the Lord is good, so on and so forth. So hunger is an image that we're going to play with, and we're going to look at it through uh, the, that verse 6. So keep your eyes there. Now think about hunger with me for a minute. Hunger is a kind of desire that very often swallows up our other desires. So uh, a bunch of years ago, I spent almost four days uh, alone in the Minnesota wilderness with nothing but a, a poncho and no food. And um, it, which is which is which is just it was kind of just this side of absolute stupid, um, uh, and maybe it was a little bit beyond that line. Um, and, and it was a kind of go out and find yourself sort of thing. Anyways, at the end of there's a bunch of us that were doing it. At, at the end of four days without any food and just kind of living under a poncho, um, my friends and I came back together because we were all kind of spread out in the wilderness. 
And when we came back together, I was really, really weak. I'd never gone that day that long without uh, food before. And I was, I, I really struggled to walk. I, I would walk kind of from tree to tree. I had a hard time kind of keeping a straight line uh, as I walked. And, um, it, and it, it, was, it was kind of shocking to me just how, you know, hey, check it out. If you don't eat for a while, that, that's what happens. However, um, my friends and I, we ate just a little bit of food and then word came that three miles down the trail, there was a bus. And on that bus, it was full of food. And that bus was going to take us back to civilization. And when I found out about that, all I could think about was the food that I anticipated was on this bus. And it transformed everything because all of a sudden, I had this kind of, you know, flood, I guess, of adrenaline. I don't know what it was, but all of a sudden I had a lot of motivation. And I put on my pack and I would started almost, not quite, but nearly felt like running down the trail uh, towards this bus that was apparently full of food. And when I got to that bus, it was like an old school bus kind of thing that was going to take us someplace else. When I got to that school bus, it was in fact full of food. And, and I, I made a bologna sandwich and never in my life had I been so fond of bologna as I was in that moment. And I ate it with savagery. I mean, I just murdered that, that sandwich. And then I vividly remember that the crumbs started to fall down uh, on, the, on the floor of the bus. And if you know a, a yellow school bus, their floors, I think they come pre-sticky. They're always sticky, you know, and disgusting. And, and, but without thinking, I dropped down on my knees and I started gathering together, irrespective of the sticky, the crumbs that fell down, I started stuffing them in my, in my mouth. I just, it, it didn't even occur to me that that was weird. Um, that hunger was remarkably clarifying. It motivated me, it gave me great focus, it reprioritized everything around that uh, bologna sandwich. I don't think I've had bologna since, but anyways. Now, why am I saying this? Well, take a look at our verse. Jesus says that hunger is absolutely central to the, Christ to the Christian life. And he calls us to a kind of hunger that reprioritizes all our other desires. It becomes the driving center or contributes to the driving center of our lives. And so what we need to do is figure out what it is that he means. So we're going to ask basically two questions. What are we supposed to be hungry for, according to Jesus, and why does it satisfy? Because he says it does. First of all, what are we supposed to be hungry for? Well, take a look at the verse again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, wait for it, everybody say it together, for righteousness. All right, now that word, righteous, brings up a problem for me. Does it bring up a problem for you? And the problem that brings up for me is um, that I just, very often, I don't think we have very good con uh, connotations with that word righteous, do we? Like if you were to say, Jim, what's your highest ambition in life? And if I were to respond, um, my highest ambition in life, besides being like, I don't know, in the Olympics, not going to happen. But anyways, you know, if I were to say, my highest ambition in life is to be righteous, that would be a weird thing to say. Would you ever want to hang out with me again? Do you know what I mean? Like, because the word righteous very often, tell me if I'm right later, it seems, it, it connotes either I, my highest ambition is that I want to be a rule keeper, which doesn't sound very compelling, or my highest ambition is to be something that just sounds self-righteous and like a jerk. Now, I don't know if you identify with that, 
but it's some of what comes up for me. And if you read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, because this is just the introduction, if you read through the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it almost appears to get worse. Because later on, and just a few paragraphs later, Jesus says that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then your, he uses the word, your righteousness must exceed that of the uh, Pharisees. And if you know anything about the Pharisees at that time, they were just absolute ninjas at rule keeping and thinking highly of themselves because of it. And Jesus says, think about those rule keepers who are self-righteous. He says, their righteousness does not even meet the minimum requirement if you're going to be a follower of me. And if you're like Jim, you read that and it causes all kinds of trouble. Now, why, why would we want to pursue righteousness? Well, here's what I want to show you. When Jesus uses the word righteous or righteousness, he means something different from what normally pops up into at least my head, maybe yours, when we think about that word. Jesus's view of righteousness is both more demanding and more compelling than mere rule keeping. And Jesus's view of righteousness, if we understand it, it'll actually cause us to be the opposite of a self-righteous Pharisee. Let me explain what I mean. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus begins to uh, explain what it is that he means by righteous. And his view of righteousness, and this is what I want to show you, it is a righteousness that is animated by relationship. So, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, uh, this is later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, just listen, I know it's not in front of you, but just listen. He says, beware of practicing your, keyword righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, here's the question that's kind of, that Jesus is bringing up. He's saying, why do you do the righteous things that you do? And that's Jesus's question all through that section of the sermon. And in it, Jesus looks at giving, and he looks at prayer, and he looks at fasting. And each time, he implicitly asks the same question, why do you do the righteous things that you do? Now, what's important is to notice that Jesus is not primarily focused on behavior. He assumes the behavior. He assumes that we give. He assumes that we fast. He assumes that we pray. His focus, however, is underneath the behavior at the level of motivation. What is it that motivates you to do the righteous things that you do? Or better, Jesus focuses in on the audience. For whom do you do the righteous things that you do? Do you see that? Do you do them to impress other people? To get their approval? Do you do them for yourself so that you can know that you're an all right person? I'm okay as long as I follow these rules. That's how I know I'm okay. And the, the self-righteous Pharisees in his day and in ours, they were all about keeping the rules. And outwardly, they seemed to do a good job. But they kept the rules. Part of the problem was their audience. They kept the rules in order to impress other people, or they kept the rules in order to impress themselves with themselves. But Jesus here shifts the audience. He says, don't do the righteous things that you do for other people's approval. Don't even do them for your own approval of yourself. Instead, do them for your Father who is in heaven, says Jesus. And this is where 
we need to zero in on the relationship aspect of Jesus's approach to righteousness. Do them for your father. See, Jesus wants us to be hungry for a righteousness that is animated by relationship. And even more than that, he wants it's a relationship that is animated by a deeply intimate relationship. Notice he doesn't use the word God. He uses the word Father. Your Father. It's an intimate word. Let me, let me read you more of chapter 6. It says this. When you pray, says Jesus, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now go with the imagery there. Um, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your private room. And the word, the word that he uses for private room there is the word where you store your most treasured possession. So he says, go into your treasure storehouse. And there what you will find is that your treasure is your father. Your father is there waiting for you. There in the room. And there meet with your father. Your father wants to meet with you, says Jesus. And there in the secret place, your father will reward you. Now, that's where Jesus takes us. And it's there in that relationship with God as our Father, that's where we discover the kind of righteousness that Jesus wants us to desire. And it's a righteousness that cannot be reduced to rule-keeping, though it includes uh, rigorous obedience, but it can't be reduced to mere rule-keeping because you can keep rules without relationship, but you cannot have the righteousness of Christ without a relationship. The Pharisees could keep rules, but they didn't have this kind of intimate relationship with God as their father. And so Jesus wants us to crave, to hunger for this kind of righteousness animated by relationship. Now, let me try to illustrate this. Have you ever read the book um, by Jack London, The Call of the Wild? Everybody's like, no. And a few of you, yes, but don't want to admit it or whatever. Okay. So it's a book about a dog, and I like dogs, so... It's a book, a book about a dog. The dog is named Buck. He's a sled dog in the Yukon. And he goes over the course of the story from master to master. And his last master nearly beats him to death. Terrible abuse. And then he gets rescued by a man called John Thornton. And his relationship with John Thornton ends up being completely different. Let me read to you. Story time. As Buck grew, he also grew into a new kind of existence. Love, genuine, passionate love, was his for the first time. This he had never experienced from his previous masters. It had been a working partnership, or perhaps at best a dignified friendship. But love that was feverish and burning, that was adoration, that was madness, it had taken John Thornton to arouse. This man had saved his life, which was something. But further, this man, John Thornton, was the ideal master. Other men sought to the welfare of their dogs from a sense of duty and business expediency. But he saw to the welfare of his as if they were his own children, because he could not help it. And he went further. He never forgot a kindly greeting or a cheering word to sit down for long talks with them, which, is, which was as much his delight as theirs. He had a way of taking Buck's head roughly between his hands, 
and resting his own head upon Buck's, of shaking him back and forth. And Buck knew no greater joy than that rough embrace. And at each jerk back and forth, it seemed that his own heart would be shaken out of his body. So great was the ecstasy. And when released, he would spring to his feet, his mouth laughing, his eyes eloquent, his throat vibrant with unuttered sound, and John Thornton would reverently exclaim, Buck, you can all but speak. Buck obeyed his previous master like a slave. Buck obeyed John Thornton in a completely different way, out of love. An obedience animated by relationship. And that explains why this sort of righteousness is so deeply satisfying. Hunger and thirst for this righteousness, says Jesus, and you will be satisfied. Uh, I was once uh, preparing a, a woman for baptism. Uh, she'd been a Muslim for 10 years, and she was reflecting with me uh, on on just a little bit of what it was like in, in each uh, uh, context. And she was saying that when she was a Muslim, she knew uh, that she was never going to be good enough. She, she could never keep uh, the rules adequately. And she knew that very, very deeply. And it was very, very troubling. And she said, and then I began to look into Jesus. And she goes, and, and with Jesus in an odd way, it's worse. Because ultimately his standards are higher. But she says, and yet it's so much better. Because in Jesus, I find someone who is good on my behalf. And then she looked at me and she said, you know, I don't want to sin anymore. Because I love Jesus. And he has captivated me. And I don't want to let him down. See, she was beginning to taste a righteousness animated by relationship. And it was causing her to actually obey more than she had ever done before. She was moving from rules alone to relationship. And that's what really satisfies. Because the joy of a relationship is the thing that is worth craving. Um, if you ever notice how often Jesus talks about rewards, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice that Jesus talks about rewards all the time. He says, uh, he says all over the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, he goes, go into your father who is in secret and he will reward you. He'll reward you. Have you ever wondered what those rewards are? Um, I sometimes joke that I'm, you know, I've, I'm putting in for a, a, a transfer to like a giant horse ranch in the middle of Montana or something like that. You know? But that's not what it's about, obviously. The reward that Jesus is talking about here is the reward of a greater intimacy. Think of it this way. If Jesus wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness that is animated by relationship, then what is it that's going to satisfy that hunger for righteousness animated by relationship? Well, the only thing that can satisfy a hunger for relationship is greater intimacy in that relationship. The desire for love is only ever satisfied by greater and more intimate love. And so the reward of a righteousness animated by relationship is the greater intimacy with God as our Father. And that is the reward that will echo throughout all eternity. And it is the reason why heaven for a Christian will never be boring. It will always be new because there will be more of God's beauty to discover and more to delight you and more love to receive and your soul will expand under that love 
to a greater and greater capacity. A.W. Tozer says this, to have found God and yet still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. It is scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but it is justified in the happy experience of the children of the burning heart. Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They have mourned for him. They have prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out of season. And when they have found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long-seeking. So Emmanuel, as we relaunch, I want to know, and I want you to ask yourself this question, do you know what it is to hunger for God? Do you know what it is to hunger and thirst for a righteousness animated by relationship? And it seems to me that this is a crucial thing for us to consider right now. I think most of us know that Christianity right now has an integrity problem. Do you know what I mean? It is not hard to find the self-righteous Pharisee and it is not hard to uncover their hypocrisy, and it seems to be all around us. And we've got to ask the question, how will we respond to the integrity problem in Christianity? And one of the intuitive ways to respond is to kind of throw up our hands and give up. And some of the, one of the intuitive ways to respond is to say, maybe we can modify the ethics of Jesus just a touch. Maybe we can modify the moral vision of Jesus just a bit to make it more realistic or to make it uh, correspond more fully to my preferences or to make it correspond more fully to the consensus of the world around us. But friends, we cannot do that because there is a terrible irony that when we modify the ethics of Jesus in order to respond to hypocrisy, we find ourselves terribly self-righteous about our modification of the vision of Jesus, and it ends up that there are two ways to be a Pharisee. You can be a Pharisee by keeping the rules, by keeping God at arm's distance, but you can also be a Pharisee by modifying the ethics of Jesus and keeping God at arm's distance, and neither of them has any integrity, and that is not our path. The key to integrity is to get hungry and to hunger and thirst for righteousness animated by relationship. Emmanuel, that's our path. But now I can imagine somebody saying, and let me just say this before I end, I can imagine somebody saying, okay, I can kind of see that a righteousness animated by relationship is something to desire, but I can't say that I really feel a hunger for God. I can't say that I really feel a love for God. And I can imagine somebody saying, maybe, maybe because I don't feel a hunger for God right now, maybe I should hold back and not worry too much about obedience yet. Maybe I should wait for the hunger and the thirst and the desire for God to be felt within me before I take up the mantle of obedience. And if that goes through your mind, then let me say this, no. No, that's not our path either. Jesus demands and calls all of us to a full and robust obedience. And part of the reason that's important for us to, to seek to obey right now is this. Jesus' commandments are part of how he teaches us what love looks like upon the ground. See, all of us have ideas about what love means, but the problem is my imaginary thoughts about love and your imaginary thoughts about love are almost certainly a complex web of wisdom and stupid. Right? What I think is love may not be love. 
The world is full of well-intentioned people who do terrible harm. The way we learn what love looks like in the nitty-gritty of life is through the, the commandments of Jesus Christ, the only one who knew how to love perfectly. And the commandments of, of Jesus train us to love well and rightly. And that is particularly true when we obey commands we previously or prefer to ignore. So obey every command of Jesus. And if you find that your heart is cold, then in the midst of your obeying, bring that to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to obey. And I want to have a hunger and a thirst for a righteousness animated by relationship. And I want to pursue that. But right now, my heart is cold. I'm obeying, but my heart is cold. And that will protect you against hypocrisy and self-righteousness because it'll humble you. And in the process, Jesus will begin working in your life. And the more your eyes are fixed on Jesus, the more he will begin to impart an appetite and a hunger that you cannot generate yourself. How do you get hungry? You think about food. When I was in the middle of the, of the wilderness and I heard about the bus with bologna, I even got hungry for bologna. Thinking about food is one of the ways you get hungry. And the way the Christian gets hungry is we think about Jesus. So remember that this is what motivated Jesus. What was Jesus' greatest act of righteousness? It's when he went up upon the cross for your unrighteousness and mine. And remember just before he went upon the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That wasn't rule keeping. That was a, a righteousness animated by relationship. And it was that righteousness animated by relationship that motivated him to go to the cross and to achieve the greatest act of righteousness that any of the world will ever see and that all of eternity will continue to sing about. And when he was upon the cross, he was purchasing a righteousness for you that you don't earn. And he was purchasing for you a, the power of the Holy Spirit, which will come into your life and will give you a desire you cannot generate and a hunger you can't work up. And he will give you a love that you cannot produce. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And he will give you the hunger which will lead you to a satisfaction that will carry you through all, all your life here and through the times and endless ages of eternity. Amen? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.